obesity is worsening as a military recruitment and readiness problem. Too many potential enlistees arrive at recruitment stations too fat. More than two-thirds of active-duty service members carry too much weight. Our next guest has studied this problem extensively and has some recommendations for improving it. She's the National Security Research Fellow at the American Security Project, Courtney Manning, and she spoke with Federal Drive host Tom Temin. Briefly, how did you get into studying this particular issue, of all things? So I actually started my career as a nutritionist and consultant for the California and New York public health system as the educational contributor to a lot of different projects that evaluate school foods. So started kind of in reducing obesity for public schools, then eventually decided I needed to take on some harder problems, as hard as that already is, and start working in national security. So this has been a really exciting project that gets to blend a couple of my interests. Interesting, yes, because I guess if people are getting to be too much weight carrying as children, they're going to carry that to the point of life where they might be potential enlistees, and then the military has a problem here. So give us the scope of the problem, and how did you come up with the numbers? The finding of the numbers is the most interesting part to me as a data analyst. I think that starting out with solid numbers and tracking of this problem is key to finding solutions to solving it, right? And that's our also biggest problem with this research, is that since 2017, the U.S. military has not reliably tracked obesity rates simply because not as many individuals who are a BMI plus 25, which is the signifying code for overweight, or BMI plus 30, which BMI is body mass index. Body mass index, correct, are, you know, 30 and above. Of course, the way that doctors in clinical settings diagnose obesity is that BMI of 30 in association with a number of different health symptoms. And that BMI of 30 is a level of overfat in the body that you really want to start evaluating for other health concerns like pulmonary embolisms, for example, strokes, heart attacks, all things that would be disastrous sure. in the active duty. Right. You came up with a number of 68% of active Active duty service members have overweight or obesity. That's two thirds. Yeah, it's a significant problem. And the way that the military itself identifies overweight and obesity is a little bit different. They seem to have a unique way of presenting overweight applicants somewhere between the scale of 26 and 29 to give an extra generous allotment of body fat so that if you are someone who is incredibly fit, highly muscular, you won't necessarily be pegged as an overweight troop right away. So they have already been quite generous with their definition of these terms. But as far as our research is concerned, we're looking at those BMI values that the international community and doctors and healthcare professionals use. Sure. And you can carry a little extra weight and be highly fit. And you can also be skinny as a rail and not be fit. So it's not necessarily one-to-one problem, correct? I mean, fitness is what matters. And in military setting, I imagine endurance Oh, absolutely. And tests have been conducted extensively by the Department of Defense that demonstrate that people with a little extra weight, they can oftentimes lift and load bear. You know, we're thinking guys with 300 pound packs pretty easily. Whereas, unfortunately, the detriments of excess fat in the body, they overweigh the minor advantages in those specific settings for those individuals. So a lot of people who are highly fit, the kind of guys that you're probably thinking of when you're thinking of the active duty service, they could also be 
carrying excess fat because having fat in your body doesn't preclude the development of muscle, right? So you can have both. And it's interesting because when we do evaluate these troops in these super sophisticated body scanners that cost like thirty to $100,000 each, we're finding that those bodybuilder type guys, they're really, really fit. And they have excess fat. And that excess fat is causing them to have heart problems earlier in life, increased muscle strains and injuries, out of breath, shortness of breath. And that could be disastrous in a battlefield setting. What you really want is high VO2 max. That is the ability to process oxygen. Exactly. And that can be like severely limited in a setting where you are under very little sleep, right? Under extraordinary stress, which if we were to, God forbid, have some sort of full ground scale engagement abroad, we would want our troops to have that VO2. We would want to have the guys who can not only just lift something for a couple of seconds and then put it down, right? But to carry things long distance and hopefully not have to be carried from the battlefield. So the body mass index, the obesity question, exists in the larger context of what constitutes proper fitness for military work. Oh, absolutely. And the Department of Defense has all the resources, and they have all of the authority and power both to collect this data and to implement change. So what we've noticed is that over the past few decades, as obesity has become an enormous problem, what we're seeing is not an increase in transparency and an increase in reporting of these numbers. We're actually seeing a decline. And that, especially since 2017, has become an enormous problem because when only about 7 to 30 percent of individuals who have that obese B BMI, right, are actually being diagnosed with obesity, and then even fewer of them are receiving treatment. We're facing a problem where if you're just looking at obesity rates, you don't understand how big the problem is. You really have to look at those BMI rates. And those BMI rates are the ones that are being removed from all of these military reports that get sent to DOD stakeholders in Congress. We're speaking with Courtney Manning. She's National Security Research Fellow at the American Security Project. And is the reason they're not collecting that data is they don't want to hurt people's feelings that they're big? Or what is it? So I'm not normally one to decry wokeism or to, you know, really take a stand on that specific issue. But in this case, there is significantly and increasingly a desire on behalf of commanders and military leaders to be more sensitive on the topic of obesity. And this has led to, we were talking earlier about kind of terminology and how to ensure that we're using correct terminology when referring to this problem. If people have obesity, that is a chronic disease and they need to receive treatment for it just because of the high correlation of that BMI over 30 with associated health conditions and comorbidities, right? But if you're telling guys, well, you're just a little big, right? You're not fat, and you're having commanders who are responsible for referring these overweight military members to a doctor. They can decide on their own, I don't want to have this difficult conversation. I don't want to tell my guys who are already under a lot of pressure to perform, and I'm already under a lot of pressure to retain right troops in my sure. unit. I might just not send them in for evaluation. I might think to myself, they look fine. They're lifting fine. That is not a good way to determine who is physically fit enough to be deployed. So you have a long list of recommendations then not so much on how to get people to lose weight, but on how the military can get a handle on the issue. Yes, it's pretty solid, the science behind what helps people lose weight. And just recently, we've had a influx of really remarkable medical treatments that can help people lose weight. You know, Wigovi, Ozempic, some of these other ones that can really make a difference in these guys. But if they're not being diagnosed, if a doctor is never seeing them at any point, right, for obesity, they're never going to get the medical treatment that they need to lose weight. And that's where the problem starts. 
So you're saying the Defense Health Agency should promote and enforce awareness, diagnosis, and treatment of obesity as a chronic disease. Right, because right now, let's say you go through a fitness test, right? Your commander's watching you run laps around the track. They are taking a note of your weight and height at that test. And what that information goes to right now is to an administrative authority that then determines whether that individual for one, could be separated from service, right? But of course, there are a few intermediary steps. They are given a test of physical fitness, and if they score 285 and above, regardless of how heavy they are, they can get an exemption, right? Then it's about, well, are they even a little overweight? Maybe we'll make an allowance. And then it's up to commander discretion. And at that point, the commander can think, I can fill out all this administrative paperwork to judge this person is too fat to serve, or I can not right? Just let them go back in. My life is easy. Their life is easy. My retention numbers are good. They're good to serve. And if I decide that they are not fit to serve, they face administrative sanctions. So they can't go to advanced training opportunities. They can't get promoted. They can't have a variety of other privileges and they're taken out of service and put into kind of this military fat camp, right? Which is very stigmatizing for service members. They basically feel like they're being removed from their their peer organization. They're removed from their opportunities. And then they could be separated if they don't improve by six months, which is in a state right now where we're having this recruitment and retention crisis, we can't afford that. All right. And what other recommendations do you have besides DHA treating this in that certain manner, but basically confront it by measuring everyone? And then if they reach that level that is considered obese in body mass index, count them as such and then get them into counseling? Absolutely. And there are specific counselors who are absolutely like the best at this, right? You would think, oh, just because they're a doctor, they obviously know what to do. But we find this across the board, not just in the military, to be untrue. So military members are going to doctors, and if they don't meet pre-diabetes screening criteria, which over 50% of them do, right? But let's say they don't. They might not be diagnosed with obesity, even if they have an adipose tissue dysfunction or other like direct symptom of obesity in their body, right? now. Uh, And that's a problem because if you're treating this problem as one that is administrative or you're disregarding BMI and you're just looking for prediabetes or diabetes indicators, you're missing out on a lot of health conditions that could affect service members. And then those might not show up until you have a stroke, right? Or a heart attack in the middle of Kuwait or Iraq, you know, and, and that's a problem. So basically get rid of the fat shaming and stigma of it. Get people objectively measured and then get them treatment for whatever it is that's causing the obesity. It could be an eating disorder. Sometimes it's a psychological component, or sometimes, you know, it's three desserts and just take one. Exactly. And you make it sound simple because it should be simple, right? That's exactly how it should be. If you have that BMI of over 30, the correlated health conditions are so severe in the body that you really need to get checked out. And we've heard from people from all sorts of the spectrum politically saying, well, there are certain cultural problems with BMI. And the American Medical Association has actually come out and said that the BMI system is racist, right? Simply because not every person from every background stores fat in the same way. And not all of those things can contribute to the same exact health problems in the same populations. Courtney Manning is National Security Research Fellow at the American Security Project. We'll post this interview along with a link to her study at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. 
As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people and in order to do that we really value our people we want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them so well-being is important psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard so I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I... I I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of 
our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people 
on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career. 
and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.